Automation Ladies, the only podcast that we know of where girls talk about industrial automation and related topics. So today we're doing a very special episode where we are in person at Rapid Robotics. I was invited here both yesterday for a behind the scenes tour of their facility and their process, as well as have we did a live stream event earlier today talking about why it's so imperative for manufacturers to start automating now and to not wait. I'll make sure to include a link to the live stream in the show notes for this episode. So if you didn't catch it, I would highly recommend it. We had some great experts and some of our friends that have either been on the show or are going to be, including Aaron Crow and Aaron Prather. But I, before I left, I was actually introduced to Lisa Hu, the CFO of Rapid Robotics. And I they mentioned a white paper that they're going to release about the financials involved in CapEx versus robots as a service. And A, it's not very common to see a woman in a C-suite leadership role, especially in the financial Mm -hmm. side of things at an automation company. And B, that is actually one of the very interesting like questions that I've had. And I have some perspectives or I've always thought that being able to rent a robot is great. It's a lower barrier to entry. You don't have to pay for that CapEx right up front, but I don't come at it from a financial perspective. So we decided to take the opportunity to do special Automation Ladies episode with Lisa so that A, I could hear her story Mm -hmm. and B, we could talk a little bit more about these financials and, you know, what the benefits are or what does it really look like, the cost of ownership of a robot versus renting and those sorts of things. So... Lisa, yes, thank, thank you, you so much for being here and talking to me. I know it was last yeah. minute, so I appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. You know, I think the podcast, I was part of it from as an audience, and it was just so wonderful because I think it provides a lot of highlight about what we're trying to do as well as the ecosystem that we're part of yeah. with our partners, whether they're suppliers, manufacturers, and customers as well. So thank you for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. So my first question that we always ask on the mm-hmm. show is, is, I don't like to read people's bios or you know, introduce people the traditional way. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of your journey to get here in your position as a CFO at Rapid Robotics? Oh, definitely. Very delightful. So I've been at Rapid Robotics for about two years now. I actually met Jordan Kirschmer when he actually started the company. And at that time, I was also at another startup. And we, you know, we hit it off quite well. And we both decided that at the end of the day, Rapid was just really at too early stage to bring in a full-time finance and or CFO person. Mm -hmm. And so we kept in touch. And then during the course, I'd say the last couple of years, as I was completing the M&A and due diligence and integration of a a startup that was at that was moving into or transitioning into a publicly traded company, I thought, oh, you know, I should go back to my contacts and see, you know, make those reconnections again. And Jordan and I hit it off again quite well. And it was just one thing led to I've been actually in the startup environment for the past probably more fingers and toes that I can that I have today. I've also early on my career have worked for Fortune 100 companies where they're easily north of 130,000 employees worldwide. And at the end of the day, I've actually kind of come back to the startup environment just because the ability to build and and be part of that growth, right? Which is hence one of many reasons why I'm here at Rapid Robotics. The analogy I would use in what I've done to what we're trying to do here is being partners and collaboration and being part of that ecosystem or creating this ecosystem, right? Because at the end of the day, as much as we would like to do everything ourselves, 
it's quite difficult, right? Due to, for a variety of reasons, whether it's time, resources, the environment, or the macroeconomics and what have you. So by partnering and forming those ecosystems allows us to be able to kind of build and grow. And ultimately, it's a win-win for both parties, right? Whether it's our partners or our business itself allows us to have the ability to flex and to be able to accommodate the changes in the marketplace. Yeah. Well, I love all of that. You, you probably don't know this yet, but I'm actually head of partnerships okay. at a startup <laughs> called Quopium. We're an e-commerce marketplace for industrial automation suppliers mm-hmm. to be able to collaborate. And I so I work with our supplier partners to help them bring another channel to reach more customers. And it's not an either or. And a lot of, you know, a lot of what I do is kind of some of our distributors get it immediately. Right. How having more partners and being able to be in more places and show up in different ways to those customers as they have different needs is sort of the way to move forward rather than thinking, okay, I have my little black book of customers and I need to keep everything to myself in one channel, Mm -hmm. tell people how to do business with me. I think we're in a little bit of a different era now where having a, a, an ecosystem rather than a all me, you know, mentality Mm -hmm. also plays out very well to the customer because they don't, they know that you're going to not force them to use you for the things that are not your strengths, right? Right. You're going to pull in the right expertise from an exactly. ecosystem partner or, or something like that. I and mean, I think people are kind of tired of the business forcing on them. Hey, we are going to do it all. And right. we're going to, and no, everybody knows you can't do everything really well. No, you can't. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> so I was, you know, curious, I guess, in your previous startups mm-hmm. or the, or the big companies that you worked at, were they in manufacturing at all? Or is this kind of your first foray into hardware automation or manufacturing? Um, actually, or? with some of the other startups that I've worked at, it had some of the IoT manufacturing hardware element of it. Okay. There's always some aspect of SaaS and AI. Yeah. So in that particular space, I've probably been in that particular vertical for probably north of, I don't know, 7, 10 years or so. Yeah. But in other companies, it was either purely hardware or software. I've also worked in like financial services and you know consulting as well. So I think what I bring to the party is really the full blended partnership kind of ecosystem, the the intellectual reach that ordinarily maybe a particular traditional finance person wouldn't ordinarily have. Yeah. It's really more of that business partnering, which I think certainly lends itself to what we do here at Rapid as well, right? Because we're looking, we're building the partnership, we're building the relationship with our customers and our mm-hmm. suppliers, right? So that it's a, certainly a collaborative effort and we bring the forth the best solution to our customers. Yeah. And I'm sure one of the big things, I mean, joining an early stage startup or when the timing is right, it has a lot to do with the team as right. well as, of course, the product market fit and right. so on. I have a kind of a similar story with how I joined Quotebeam. It was not like, oh, I met them and interviewed for a job and right. got it. I actually knew the founder, the CEO from a long time ago. And then we first talked about doing something mm-hmm. together and the timing wasn't right. right and right. then a couple of years later, we talked again right. and the timing still wasn't quite right. And then when it clicks, it clicks. Right. And exactly. then it's so great to be able to work with those people that you have followed along and you knew that the ideas were good, but it doesn't have to be forced at the wrong time. Right. Right. And that's, that's very cool to hear that, like, I'm not the only one that lives, <laughs> that sees the benefit of kind of right. going with the flow in that sense, right? right? When opportunities are right, you kind of know. When you right? know, you know when the you opportunity. Know, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's part of the network in building your ecosystem too, whether it's with business partners or with, you know, friends or individuals that you've worked with in the past or colleagues or what have you. Yeah. 
So I think something that we mentioned when we were doing our live with Ali earlier is, you know, this is our first time coming here to Rapid, mm -hmm. the, the headquarters, meeting more of the team here. I've met Kim over, you know, Zoom and stuff, but all of us agree that we just, you guys like ooze an energy that we like, that attracts us. It, it feels like culture is a big thing here, not just, oh, we're innovative, we're building hardware, but... It also seems like to be very centered on the people. And that's a, that's a very important element as we, you know, interview candidates. It's really looking for, obviously, the most obvious is the technical aspect of it, right? But also the culture fit, right? Because I view it as we spend so many of our wake, wake hours working with those that we work with that you really need to be passionate, enjoy what you do, and those that you work with too. Yeah. And I think that also very much like, bleeds into the ecosystem, right? You exactly. attract those partners that also have that type of energy and feel that that's right. important. And I've come to a place, thankfully, in my career where, especially now I'm head of partnerships, some partnerships that I start to go down that road with, I realize, you know what, even though on paper, we look like perfect partners. Right. But may not necessarily be the right fit. Right. Sometimes you sit down in a room with those people and you're right. like, wait a minute, all of these boxes are checked, but there's something still off here. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also like when you don't need to force those relationships, you end up accomplishing so much more with those correct partners. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It's the qualitative aspect of it, right? I mean, absolutely. you can always check off the box from a quantitative, yeah. but there's also equally important the qualitative aspect because it's like, are the both parties in alignment with what they want to do, what they want to get out of it, their accomplishments or objectives. Yeah. And it's really, it's quite fulfilling if, you know, both parties are kind of along those same track to ultimately attain kind of whatever, go down that path, whatever they choose. Yeah. So speaking of qualitative and quantitative, mm -hmm. though, you are a finance professional and I am like, that was not my favorite <laughs> class. I got a business degree. I passed finance, but I clearly did not end up there. But I definitely see, you know, just the economics in general of mm -hmm. things as a service. We've seen it play out with software. Right. I've actually in my own life with my dad and his startup, we, he was doing IoT kind of before it was cool, before it was called that. And his business, what he decided a long time ago was that he was just going to combine everything into a, into a package mm -hmm. and sell the hardware and the software right. as a service. And he's a small business, right? He He's never, you know, hasn't tried to get investment or anything like that, but it played out very, very well with him and his customers. And he has installations out there that have been out there in the field for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And for him as a business owner, he is now getting a very good return on investment on mm -hmm. that hardware, having rented it rather right. than sold it because he continues to make some income from it. But from the customer standpoint, they love it because every time, you know, the, the wireless standards change, mm -hmm. he upgrades the equipment. Right. They don't have to worry about that unforeseen maintenance cost or, or if something breaks. Right. And so I've seen that play out and seen how what I think it's such a great business model, mm -hmm. but I'm personally not the one looking at like the numbers of the ROI, how does that really play out? And so I'm very curious to hear from you based on this white paper, which we can share to mm -hmm. our audience if they want to read more into it. But from your perspective, can you explain a little bit about what is it that's so attractive about the economics of robots as a service for manufacturers compared to the traditional right. CapEx model? Well, so I think if we take a step back about technology itself, right? I mean, technology has evolved very rapidly, so to speak, you know, over the course of the last 10 to 20 years, right? Yeah. To think 30 years ago, our cell phone was this big block, right? Right. And you look at the cell phone today, I mean, they're very small, they fit in your pocket, right? Or they can fit in your little purse, right? And so to keep a piece of equipment for 20 or 30 years could potentially be obsolete, yeah. 
right? And then the associated maintenance and support with it. If it becomes, if it near, approaches obs- obsolescence, right, then to find the people to service it will even be, or the parts to replace it yep. will actually become much more difficult. With robot as a, robotics as a surface, what we call RAS versus pure, you know, CapEx, you don't own the equipment, so to speak, but you, you enjoy the benefits of the services. And now those services are just not only hardware, but as well as the service aspect of it, whether it's maintenance support, whether if a gripper breaks or if there's something, if someone accidentally moves the robot, it, it, we provide the services to kind of have an engineer, whether it's remote or, or on site, to do the reprogramming because the cost associated with having a robotic software engineer is very costly, right? Yes. And it's at one person and they're extremely difficult to find. Yeah. So from a, like, if you were speaking to another CFO at a manufacturing company, mm-hmm. are there any particular things that like from a finance professional to another, aside from what I would consider to be kind of the obvious benefits, is there anything there? Like, how do you take a look at really, what are the things you need to look at when you're deciding, do I go the traditional route versus RAS? You know, how do you, I guess, make that sort of analysis and go, okay, of course, I want to say RAS in general is just better. Right. But I'm, I'm sure there's cases like it depends on the company, their maturity, their financial status, right. so right. on. Well, I, you know, I think when you look at the CapEx capital expenditure model, right, it's a very it's a significant cash outlay. Yeah. You're looking easily, you know, six, seven plus figures. Right. So you know, it could be five hundred thousand, be seven fifty over a million, a couple of million. Right. And that's pure cash outlay versus a CapEx model. Right. It's a very fixed amount. It's very easily ascertainable. Right. It's very predictable on the, unlike a CapEx model whereby you may put this huge cash outlay, but find yourselves that, oh, there's all these other additional hidden costs that perhaps was not necessarily incorporated into the initial RFP, whether something breaks or, you know, additional support and services and what have you versus the RAS model. It's, it's what you see is what you get. Right. It's very predictable from a financial standpoint. You can easily you know, smooth out your cash flow. You can smooth out your operating expense over a period of time. And then coupled, combined with, like I mentioned before, technology changes, Yeah. right? Or the business that you may be in may be seasonal. seasonal. So therefore, a robot may be performing a particular task for six out of, you know, 12 months. And then the other remaining six months may be a completely different task. Do that, you know, would our customers necessarily have a robotic software engineer on site to do the reprogramming, most right. likely not, right? Yeah. So therefore, they would have to call a system integrator, and that's where some of the hidden cost comes in. Well, shoot, even calling a system integrator nowadays, it's not guaranteed that they're going to be available right. to come do your project, even if you have the budget to pay them, because they're having the same staffing issues, getting exactly. enough controls engineers, and having those controls engineers be available to go fly out to your site. You know, you might be waiting a few weeks before you get exactly, and that's downtime, and that potentially ultimately hurts your bottom line because you don't have a productive line. Yeah, and I'm sure you hear this. I meant you mentioned to me earlier that you did a series of like factory tours Mm -hmm. last year, but downtime at manufacturers can be extremely expensive. Extremely, very costly to the company, to the manufacturers. Right? I mean, every I probably visited. I can't remember. Probably at least nine factory. We did nine factory tours over a course of three or four days. And there was a very, there was a common theme with each manufacturer, right? You see signs posted for hire, for hire. And, mm-hmm. Or we would visit a general manager and they would say, we've got, you know, these number of shifts 
and you know, th- there were like X number that didn't show up for their shift for whatever reason, whether they're sick, jury duty, what have you, or just decide not to show up, right? Yeah. And so it's difficult for them to backfill these roles, especially when there is actually a job shortage, right? And then I think the other thing to add to it is when you think about the RAS model, you know, robotics as a service, it allows our customers or who are manufacturers, right, to be really competitive in the macroeconomics, right? Yeah. And allow them to run their shifts three days a week, three shifts a day, you know, seven days a week, whatever their shift may call. And I think as we've seen through COVID, it's really important to bring jobs back to the U.S., yeah. right? Because we've there, there's been a, a significant movement by you know some of the larger tech companies to say, hey, we can't necessarily have our manufacturer solely in other parts of the world. We do need to bring it back to the U.S. Yeah. So a question that I thought of as you were saying that, do you feel like the current ROI model that most manufacturers use is a good indicator of, because I feel like in the past it was kind of like, hey, let's look at how many labor hours we can save by implementing this automation or this robot. And we can get rid of this many workers or this many operators or, you know, reduce their shifts. Is that still how we should be looking at the, whether investing in robotics is a good idea and whether that ROI period is actually is that the way to capture ROI on a robotic installation well, in your I opinion? Think, I mean, I think in, in any decision-making process, right, there's a, there's a number of elements that come into play, right? Obviously, it's the quantitative aspect of it, but there's also the qualitative aspect, the relationship, the ecosystem, mm-hmm. so to speak, right? I think some in some companies, the ROI may come, you know, may trump much higher than some of the other qualitative and other companies. It's like, it's more reliability, predictability, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who's our business partner? Who will be right by our side if in the event our line is down, right? To, yeah. to For them, maybe that's more of a more important factor or criteria. So I think at the end of the day, it really depends on, you know, the company and where they're at, the life cycle as well. But certainly ROI does play an important factor into the kind of decision-making process. And I think certainly with the RAS model, I mean, you take a look at human operators, right? It's fully loaded. It's significantly higher, right? And it's probably easily four or five X higher than what you would pay for a robotic solution. Yeah. So there's the ROI of the equipment of like your initial purchase. When am I going to actually make that money back or make more money than I'm paying monthly with my production Mm -hmm. increase or lowered labor costs? But then there's also like the total cost of ownership or the utilization of the robot as you have it. Are those some of the calculations? Like, do you go through that with prospective customers at all when they look at implementing a solution like robotics, you know, rapid robotics Mm -hmm. robot, not only like, Hey, how quickly will you get your money back? But what overall is, does this look like? Do you take some of those, like the maintenance factors into account, right? Cause that's a big part of actually owning a robot. You can buy one upfront CapEx, you can pay for, basically you pay for the robot itself, the hardware, then you pay for the integration from a systems integrator, the startup. And then I think traditional manufacturing has left it at that, right? We spent the money, now we have the thing, now we're going to get the throughput. Right, and we should be good to go. (laughs) And we should be good to go. And like, what about the ongoing maintenance? And I think that's why we see a lot of equipment out there that is on the verge or already obsolete in terms of components. Right. I, I work in the supply chain and people ask me all the time, 
to try to find them obsolete components. Right. Because they just need to replace the one they have on the machine and they have not upgraded or, you know, properly maintained. Well, I guess this machine wouldn't still be running if they hadn't maintained it. Right. To some degree. But to not plan for obsolescence of the hardware or the electronics involved seems like a pretty big oversight oh, financially. It, it potentially could be, right? I mean, it's one of those things that's like the unknown, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, as a finance pro- professional, you want to have some level of predictability as well as your ac- your accuracy and forecasting, right? Yeah. You don't necessarily want to put a number out there and realize that, gee, you've overspent because you know, this machine broke down, you have to go out and buy another machine and then incorporate in the aspect of bringing in a system integrator to reprogram to do the transition of your old line to your new line, right? Yeah. And so from a finance professional, to the extent that you have predictability and high degree of confidence of on your accuracy of your financials, right? So yeah, I think that's kind of the, and that would be the perfect world. Yeah. Well, sounds like, you know, there's a lot of a lot of benefits to this model. In addition to the traditional, I think, you know, a lower barrier to entry as well, right? More small to medium sized right. businesses can figure out how to fit this in their budget versus the big capital outlay. Right. And then hopefully they can use the availability of their robots that they have as a service as a catalyst to get more business and mm-hmm. grow. Exactly. Do you see that with your customers typically that they're able to add capacity? They're not just replacing let's say, labor with the robot and staying the same? Well, I think it's really taking those human resources, right, and putting them in roles and responsibilities and jobs where it's providing greater value to the to our customer, you know, to the company, right? Yeah. Because to be able to stand in front of a machine where you're inspecting parts and putting the good part into one bin and the bad part into other bin, we're all humans. We have good days and bad days, yeah. right? And so, and so it's very repetitive, right? It's not challenging. There's very, there's no interactions with humans, right? And so by taking these individuals of more value add and, and providing them the ability to gain the experience and additional skill sets on maybe how to be a, a help facilitator or, or be part of that automated solution, I think that's a win-win for both parties. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I feel yeah. like this is I, really helped me. I'd love to see, and I'll, like I said, we'll link to the white paper because sometimes just looking at those, those, I'm not a huge fan of looking at numbers, but sometimes yeah. I really want to look people at people just kind of glaze over you them. Be like, yes, I've kind of said this idea for a right. while now, but like now I'd like to back it up. And that's the thing I think with new technology too, it takes a little while to collect all the numbers, but then, right. you know, you can actually say, okay, yes, my my assumptions were correct. This is actually how it plays out. Right. You now have an installed base. How long have you guys had your robots out there? About a couple of years now? Uh, at least two and a half years. Yeah. I mean, to think that we're just a little three-year-old company, right? So and that's pretty phenomenal, right? Because right. at the end of the day, we have, like I go back to, we have this ecosystem. Yeah. Right. Whether it's robot manufacturers, computers, cables, and all that, right? That helps us service our customers. And it's not necessarily just providing the hardware, but the service aspect of it, which is hence the reason why it's called robotics as a service. Yeah, I absolutely. I just found out recently that some manufacturers literally outsource maintenance. It could be, yeah. And no, it it is. And I actually, I just didn't realize that. I usually thought of maintenance personnel as the maintenance department at the plant. You know, they've got their, their spare parts, tools, crib and stuff like that. And I just heard this recently that there are... Big manufacturers that don't even have their own maintenance staff, mm-hmm. they contract out maintenance. So there's obviously like just a lot of variation as to how business is done. 
in the different in manufacturing, my friend Megan gets mad at me when I call it an industry. It's a sector. She sector. says, Nikki, it's, there are many industries in the manufacturing sector and they all do things a little bit differently. But this is one of the things I love about what you guys are doing. Mm-hmm. One of my main missions at Copeam and sort of everybody in our little ecosystem is that we want to open the doors mm-hmm. and share the information and share the learnings right. so that we can all benefit from those learnings. Exactly. Exactly. And that's another big, you know, thing that I love about the premise of the robots as a service is because you guys as a partner, you train all these robots, mm-hmm. you install them in different places, doing very similar applications, but they are all, you know, have their own little but as of one of the things I learned yesterday during the tour is that Every time you guys do that, you can take those learnings and apply it to the next one. Exactly. And so basically every one of your customer partners gets to benefit a little bit from your prior experience with all your other customers. That's so true. And each customer, for what we do, each each of our customers, it's very customized. Yeah. Right. It's very unique to their particular tasks to their, their, to their lines, right? There may be some similarities among the different customers, but nonetheless, there is quite a bit of customization, right? Whether it's the motion, the gripper, the conveyance and so forth. That's one of the things I love about kind of marrying the, the newer technology and software and cloud computing and data with the hardware and manufacturing. Like we're getting closer and closer to an age of mass personalization, I would Mm -hmm. call it, or, you know, being able to do things that are custom, but at scale. Right. Isn't that like the Holy Grail, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody gets the key, exactly what the they need, to the kingdom. <laughs> but without having to build it all from scratch. Right. Every time. Or build it yourself. Yes, exactly. Right. Well, Lisa, is there anything else that you want to say or, or a point you want to get across to our audience today? No, I think, you know, def- I mean, I think if, if for those that are considering automate, I would highly encourage you to kind of think about it a little bit harder because, you know, with this day and age, and especially what we've lived through over the course of the last three years with COVID, right? It's a testament that we, we, as an organization and bringing jobs back to the U.S., we've got to also focus on how best to do it. And that's generally through automation. Yeah. Well, thank you so much yeah. for the thank conversation. You, yeah. I appreciate it. Same here. It's great to meet you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.